Hey, welcome to the third session in our values series here at Neighbors Church. We've opened our church plant by looking at the things that we consider the most important, the things that we believe should govern and filter the way that we make decisions and the actions that we take. So this is actually part two as we're looking at our second value of stillness. And for this teaching and the next teaching, we're just introducing bodily practices that help us produce and live into our value of stillness. So let's start this teaching by talking about the Trinity. Love. (laughs) Love is the source, foundation, and purpose of God's created universe. And so the Bible reveals God actually as a community of love. This is the mysterious and the holy paradox that theologians define as the triune nature of God. God is a trinity. That is, he is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he is one in essence. And so throughout eternity, the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Son and the Father, and so on and so forth. It's this beautiful dance of love and this beautiful, eternal community of love, but one in essence, mysterious, paradoxical. That's Christian theology. Now, out of that love, God created all things, including you and including me. Creation and humans, we are an outflow of God's loving reality. So to be fully human, or to be what God intends us to be, or to be like truly ourself, we have to know and experience and live out of that community of love. I believe this is at the heart of one of Jesus Christ's most profound statements when he said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And then he followed that up with one of his most important commands. Now, remain in my love. The essence of Christianity is to know and experience ourselves as loved by God. Loyal obedience is our loving response to God's love. And here's the problem. We don't know and experience ourselves as loved by God. And we don't obey as a responsive act of love. Sin, guilt, shame, Satan, culture, an entire constellation of influences cause us humans to lose ourselves. And so then we hide ourselves. And then we begin to fabricate and maintain false selves. We actually create pseudo-selves that we think God and other humans will accept and love. But those pseudo-selves are not truly us. The love we pursue and experience in this world, it turns out to be very brittle and fickle instead of unconditional and unceasing and eternal. And our obedience, if you're in the church, when we obey, our obedience is often not just a loving response to God's love, but our obedience more often than not is a way of working to gain God's love. And so here again in this first teaching series at Neighbors, uh, our core values, simplicity, stillness, and spirit. Simplicity, 
stillness, and spirit, these filters through which we make decisions and actions. When we embrace these values, when we filter and grid our lives through simplicity, through stillness, through dependence on the Holy Spirit, what these values compel us to do is remove the attachments that we build our false identities on. That's the value of simplicity. And build our identity as loved children by our Creator God. Uh, our values, they, they transform us. They, they slow us down and they attune our souls to God's presence and to God's love and to God's will. That's what stillness does for us. And so, in many ways, our core values, they direct us towards and they provide means of experiencing and knowing ourselves in loving union with God. These values, ultimately, they end up transforming mere obedience to what God actually wants from us and what God actually desires from us, which is joyful, loving partnership with us. So as I said, we're looking at our second value of stillness. And stillness is more than just ceasing movement. Like simplicity that we talked about in our last teaching, stillness is actually a posture of heart. Stillness is an inward attunement to God's presence and activity in the present moment, and that inward attunement shapes our outward behavior. So for this teaching, we want to introduce two bodily practices, that is, practices that we engage in with our body that actually produce and promote this this inward posture of stillness that we then carry into the world around us. Those practices are silence and solitude. Now, silence and solitude in the spiritual literature and in the mystical literature of, of Christian history, they are almost one and the same thing. You cannot engage silence without entering true solitude. And when you enter into true solitude, you're actually having to embrace silence as well. So silence, solitude, they're virtually synonymous and they're always connected to each other in the literature and in practice. So this teaching is actually just going to weave the two together as one. We're going to bounce back and forth from silence to solitude, but always bear in mind that one requires the other. You can't have one without the other. They are one and the same. I came across a new book that I highly recommend written by the great Norwegian explorer Erling Hage. In 1993, he uh, became the first human to reach the South Pole alone and completely unsupported. So for 50 days, uh, Erling, he drug his sled full of supplies across the frozen landscape of the Antarctic with no help from any other humans, not even their voices, because against the wishes of his team, Erling threw his radio away at the onset of the journey. So he wrote this incredible little book entitled Silence in the Age of Noise. And in it, Kage likens silence to a vast ocean. Or he says silence is like an endless snowy expanse. He likens silence to this immeasurable scope. The depths of silence are unknown and its mysteries are hidden much like the ocean or endless expanses that haven't been explored. And then he says that humans have like two responses to oceans or two responses to these vast unexplored expanses. Kage says that we have two responses to silence and solitude. We either stand in awe of their majesty 
and we seek to intentionally enter them and explore them, or, and this is more often the case, especially with our culture, we fear the unknown and we flee them. You know, I've had that feeling surfing out at Pacific Beach at sunrise and there's nobody out there at 5.30 in the morning and you look out across the expanse of the ocean and it's very unsettling and you want to flee from it. Silence and solitude can be a very similar thing for us. What Erling concludes is that our fear of silence, it's actually a fear of getting to know ourselves better. In this age of ceaseless distraction and frenetic pacing, we followers of Jesus, we must intentionally enter places of silence and solitude as a means of becoming still and finding our true self there loved by God. And as we are loved by God in that place of stillness, we can go forth into the world and obey his will to bring well-being not only for our personal souls, but to all around us. Now, I have been challenged by some mentors and some friends of mine about my commitment to these values uh, at the onset of a church plant. Uh, In the church plant world, everything is, and the language is always about momentum and explosiveness and high energy and the like. And so some are concerned that embracing these values from the very beginning might kind of create a community of hippies sitting around on Sunday mornings, pondering our navels, uh, entering the silence and saying nothing, uh, being still and doing nothing, all for the kingdom of God. (laughs) I mean, I do understand that concern. But what we need to remember as we embrace these values is that, for example, we don't embrace simplicity for the sake of simplicity. We don't just get rid of stuff and reorient our lives around God and our childlike relationship with Him and leave it at that, simplicity actually produces true abundance. And true abundance is going to lead to true generosity for the well-being of others. When we embrace stillness and silence, when we stop talking, it's not as if we're not going to ever talk again. We just believe that silence helps shape true speech. Silence shapes holy speech. And when we enter into solitude, when we are alone, we don't stay alone. Rather, solitude makes us aware of our need for community and helps us to go back into community as our true selves with our masks taken off because we've experienced God's love in those places. In other words, there has to be balance. In my experience, these past 20 years since Jesus saved me, The modern Western church, of which we are all a part, has tended to overemphasize outward action while neglecting inward transformation. So I have heard a lot of talking, and I will confess myself, I will be the first to say I have done a lot of talking uh, without truly learning to listen. And honestly, I have been a part of and seen huge crowds of lonely people who don't know themselves and they don't know each other. And so these values, simplicity and stillness, entering silence and solitude to to become aware and produce this posture of heart in the world, these values are a counterbalance to a culture that has really become a runaway train. 
Now, the Apostle Paul and Jesus himself, they actually modeled for us the balanced life of silence to speech, solitude to community, stillness to action. When we read about the church planting ministry of the Apostle Paul, for example, or we're looking at the miraculous ways of Jesus, we tend to read into those stories our modern sense of constant action and and unceasing movement. I think we read those stories with like dramatic movie style uh, music playing in the background and there's explosions with slow motion walking and adrenaline fueled momentum. Guys, that historically simply was not the case. The Apostle Paul, he was certainly a man of word and deed. But we can't neglect the fact that in between his times of church planting ministry throughout Asia Minor, throughout Asia Minor, Paul was traveling the Roman Empire on foot and by boat. This means that the apostle would have not only had hours, he would have had weeks, if not months, of time alone, either in the quiet of a ship just drifting along with the currents or walking the roads of the Roman Empire. He would have had weeks to just be in a place of listening to God and his own heartbeat in his chest. Paul actually had built-in extended times of meditation on the Jewish scriptures and communing with the Holy Spirit apart from work and community and mission and all of those things. And I really am convinced that those days of attuned stillness for the Apostle Paul, they were a primary factor in him being such a volcanic force of kingdom movement. And Jesus of Nazareth, as we watch our King through the Gospels, Jesus exudes simplicity, and he just brings stillness to every event through every gospel moment. You know, to borrow family therapist and Jewish rabbi Edwin Friedman's term, Jesus truly was a non-anxious presence. Jesus had established rhythms of retreat and return, withdrawal and re-engagement, and we are, as his apprentices, to model those same rhythms. His ministry was inaugurated not necessarily with momentum, but with 40 days in the barren expanse of the Judean wilderness, alone and in the quiet. Jesus chose his 12 disciples after an entire night, not in strategic planning with the team, but after an entire night alone in persistent prayer. Jesus grieved John the Baptist, his cousin and friend. His death Jesus grieved it by retreating to a lonely place, not binging Netflix to distract himself. After the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, Jesus didn't stand up to be celebrated by the crowds. Instead, he went up to the hills to be by himself. And Mark tells us that Jesus would begin his days rising a great while before the sun, and he would go out to lonely places to pray. And I would guess he left his phone at home. You know, we could go on and on. Over and over, the rhythm of Jesus' life was one of withdrawal into the silence and solitude where he would listen. And in solitary places, he would soak in God's love, and then he would return to the noise and the intensity of the crowds to do God's bidding and speak God's words. So I said this in our last teaching. I'll say it again. I am convinced that if we're going to see deep transformation of our personal souls and see real renewal— in our neighborhoods, our classrooms, our workplaces, our cities, then we have to become still. We have to go into the silence to listen. 
And we have to embrace the solitude that acquaints us with our true selves. And in that place, experience our true selves as unconditionally, perfectly loved by our Father. But just like exploring vast expanses or that huge ocean, exploring silence and solitude can be scary. And this is why. To enter silence and to embrace silence is to trust and to let go of control. We use our words to manipulate, to coerce, to convince, to fight, to persuade, to debate. We use our words to make our way through the world. Richard Foster writes in his contemplative classic, A Must Read, Celebration of Discipline, One reason we can hardly bear to remain silent is that it makes us feel so helpless. We are so accustomed to relying upon words to manage and control others. If we are silent, who will take control? God will take control, but we will never let him take control until we trust him. Silence is intimately related to trust. I love that. Silence equals trust. Silence equals letting go of control. When the psalmist writes in Psalm 62, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He's exhorting himself to the hard work of trust without words, waiting without words. The psalmist's hope is in the God who knows what he needs and can do what needs to be done. And so as we embrace silence, leading us to a posture of stillness in our environments through our day, being quiet in the moment, not using words, in the meeting, especially in the quarrels with whoever it may be, learning to be silent in those places. Those are all bodily expressions of deep trust. Even in prayer, when we go silent and just listen, which by the way, the prayer masters through the history of the church, they all say, That silence and listening is the place where prayer actually culminates in union with God. And so in prayer, when we embrace silence and just listen, we are actually stopping our trying to control God with our words, and we're learning to just let him speak. Now, like silence, solitude can seem like a vast, barren expanse that we actually just want to uh, avoid instead of exploring And underlying our fear of solitude is the torture of loneliness. The great spiritual writer Henry Nouwen said, to live a spiritual life, which I think he would define as a life attuned to the Spirit's voice and guidance and empowerment, to live a spiritual life, we must first find the courage to enter into the desert of our loneliness and change it by gentle and persistent efforts into a garden of solitude. At root here, this fear of solitude, it's a fear of missing missing out. Hashtag FOMO, the mantra of our Instagram society, that is code for hashtag no one knows me. Uh, I'm not contributing. I'm not valuable. I'm not part of the loved community. I actually have discovered since embracing solitude and entering into it intentionally that solitude can lead to hashtag JOMO, the joy of missing out. That may seem unbelievable to some of you, but it's true. So as with most things in our current cultural moment, 
There's an epidemic of loneliness. In 2018, former Prime Minister of the UK, Theresa May, she launched the first ever governmentally supported loneliness strategy. And this strategy was complete with a minister for loneliness, a minister for care, and an upwards of 1.8 million pounds to create community spaces for people to come to to overcome their loneliness. The British government said, loneliness is one of the greatest public health challenges of our time. And that government site goes on to list many noble actions that are going to be funded and, and, you know, offered to the British people to tackle loneliness head on. And obviously, we applaud We applaud the compassionate efforts of the British government, and we pray that some headway is made. Jesus, though, he would point us away from governmental programs. Jesus would even point us away from more community as a means of overcoming loneliness. Jesus would point us towards embracing solitude as a means of transforming loneliness. Richard Foster, again, from Celebration of Disciplines, he's incredible when he says, Jesus calls us from loneliness to solitude. We can cultivate an inner solitude and silence that sets us free from the loneliness and fear. Loneliness is inner emptiness. Solitude is inner fulfillment. I think Foster is going all in on the truth, that as we develop a silent posture of solitude in this world that is listening to God and sensing His companionship, Foster believes, I believe, that then we are made full and we are made whole. Foster continues, If we possess an inward solitude, we will not fear being alone, for we know that we are not alone. And this is key. Now he says, When we embrace an uh, an inward solitude, we no longer fear being with others, for they no longer control us. So that's it. That's our goal in the practices, the bodily practices of silence, ceasing from words and solitude, removing ourselves from crowds and community for periods of time. We want to be still. We want to learn to listen. And ultimately, we want to experience intimate union with God so that we can give our loved selves to others in obedience to God, which is exactly what Jesus did. So what are some practical steps as we get ready to wrap this teaching up? What are some practical steps to embracing silence and solitude, actually entering into these practices in this crazy time that we live in? What can we do even after this teaching to to, to make this happen? Number one, you literally have to plan for it. You have to make time to put these practices into your calendar and you have to make them non-negotiable. Take your most important meetings and say, my 10 minutes, my 15 minutes of silence and solitude is as important as any meeting on this calendar. Lock it in. Number two, you have to plan for a place as well. I live in the city of San Diego, eighth largest city in the United States. It's just wall-to-wall people connected by freeways. There's no way to get away from the people. So what do you do? You plan for a place. And what I do is I literally use earplugs and then I put gun muffs over those and I let my family know I'm going for my time of silence and solitude to listen to the Lord and I lock myself in the room. My kids are teenagers now, so they can exercise most times enough restraint to not knock on the door and allow me my 15 to 20 to 30 minutes of silence and solitude. Um, 
but I've planned for that place. Now, of course, uh, you can go further in that. I plan retreats, silent retreats, overnighters, camping, if you have access to cabins or vacation homes that you can get to. But find and pray for a place that you can practice silence and solitude in. It becomes a sacred space. It really does. No matter how goofy it sounds, if you're sitting there with earplugs and gun muffs on. (laughs) Number three, start small. So put on your calendar 10 minutes of silence this week, or maybe plan a a half hour walk around Mission Trails, which is an area here in San Diego. Um, Sometimes we Americans, we're like, go big or go home. And we're introduced to these topics. And next thing I know, you know, you're you're heading out to the deserts and you've got nothing but a jug of water and you're going to stay out there for 40 days in the silence and the solitude. I promise you that is not going to go well. You're going to die. So, um... You want to start small and through time, give, be gentle with yourself. Be patient. This is very difficult. Slowly, over time, build longer durations of silence and solitude into your calendar rhythms. Remember, this isn't a competition. God's not impressed with 45 minutes and not impressed with five minutes. All God wants is you and all God wants is your soul. That's all he cares about. And so start small. Don't make it a competition. Don't think that you're more loved or hear more deeply if you go longer. Just enjoy being in his presence. Number three, or number four, learn to embrace daily moments of silence and solitude. God gives us these gifts. Uh, Here in Southern California, traffic on the eight at almost any given time is an opportunity to slow down, be still, turn off the radio, turn off the podcast, roll up the windows, and just sit in the silence and look at this massive humanity surrounding you. There are moments throughout our days where we can just suddenly become aware that I am quiet now and I am alone with my thoughts wherever I may be. Embrace those as a gift from God. Number five. Begin the practice in conversations of saying less and listening more. This is the most difficult part for me. We need to learn to trust that there's no need to control situations with our words or control people's perceptions with our words. Um, Learning to say less actually says a lot to the people around us, and it really engages us with who we are in the presence of other people. Now, I want to give you something concrete here. Um to actually do during your 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes of silence and solitude. It's key that we understand this. We are not Buddhists. So right now in corporate America and uh, human optimization and performance, uh, fitness, all of those arenas, psychology, mindfulness is all the rage. Uh, And I love it. The science behind mindfulness is incredible. Uh, We'll be talking a lot about that in future teachings. But we are not Buddhists, and a lot of what's filtering through into pop culture with mindfulness is um, Eastern practices of meditation, where the end goal is to uh, lose ourselves, to actually um, divorce ourselves from ourselves and our desires. Whereas the Christian practice of meditation and the Christian practice of silence and solitude is to become so mindfully aware of God and ourselves in and with God that we don't lose ourselves, we become fully ourselves. And so our process of mindfulness and silence and solitude is a filling up of ourselves with God's words, with God's presence, with an awareness. It's, it's, it's opposite of the Eastern practices of meditation that are so popular in our current culture. 
So Christians have developed many practices over the centuries uh, to fill our minds and as we meditate. But one that I have found the most helpful for myself personally, you may not. Uh, you can you can explore different options and different ways that Christians have done this through the centuries. But one that I found very helpful was developed by Franciscan monks, uh, Thomas Keating and Basil Pennington. And it's simply called centering prayer, centering prayer. So I'll walk you through my process. Uh, with centering prayer, you find a quiet place. You settle down, sit down, and just become aware of your breath. Um, I do find it fascinating that Adam, the very first thing that Adam experienced as a human was God's breath in him. And so Descartes would say, I think, therefore I am. I think that the ancient Hebrew sages would say, we breathe the breath that God has given us. Therefore, we are. We're humans. And so just become aware of your breath. I would encourage you to breathe uh, diaphragmically, meaning breathe down into your belly. And that is for the purpose, biologically and neurologically, when we breathe down into our bellies and slow down and become aware of our breath, the parasympathetic nervous system, that is the system that calms us and begins healing us, the cells in our body, that's what kicks that in. And so we are actually bodily engaging the tools that God has given our bodies to calm ourselves, to listen, to become aware, to come into a place of peace and healing. And so become aware of your breath, maybe three or four breaths, just breathing deeply down into your, into your belly. And then after a few moments, you're going to center your focus. Keating and, and the Centering Prayer Foundation, they say, use one word, the word trust or the word love, the word father. Uh, the word peace, the word joy, you essentially choose a biblically loaded word. I use the word trust. I've used the word trust now for almost a decade. I can't, uh, I have built such deep contours of my body reacting to the word trust that I, I usually don't use any other word. And so you breathe in and slowly uh, lightly and gently. You're not forcing your brain or your body. You're, you're restfully and lightly introducing the word trust. Trust. And that word becomes what Keating called uh, a symbol of your consent to God's inward presence and God's divine action within you. So by faith, you're using this word as a symbol and you're saying, right now I consent that this word is my symbol this is, my, this is my symbol of consent to God. And by faith, I embrace that he is inwardly working in me, whether I feel it or not, whether I become peaceful or not. This is my word. Um, and so you're wholly focusing in silence and solitude and in the centering prayer practice on that one word. Or if you're not comfortable with one word, you can repeat uh, a particular prayer or a particular scripture meditation or even a particular scripture. You're just letting it fill you and, and you're soaking in it. You're letting it affect the way that you're thinking in your body. And on that, when the runaway train of thoughts and distraction, and I got to get to this, I got to get to that, starts taking over your mind and you become aware that you're distracted from the word or the meditation on the phrase, you, uh, Keating would say, you greet those thoughts with a hug and a kiss and let them go their way and gently return to your centering word, thanking God that you've returned to his presence, however you want to do that. 
And so you're just allowing yourself to wholly be consumed with a biblical idea or a biblical phrase, and you're letting it shape you. Now, as you engage in this practice, a couple key things. Don't quit due to frustration or lack of emotional experience. Um, I like to always finish my times of centering prayer, even if I spend the entire time freaking out, thinking I've got so much to do today, I don't have time to be doing this, but I trust. No, I don't have time to do this. Trust. If I spend 15 minutes doing that and it's just anxious (laughs) agony the whole time, I always still conclude it saying, Father, thank you that I was able to spend this time with you. I believe that you have spoken in me and done things in me that I'm not even aware of that will come to fruition later. Always end your time with thanksgiving. Now, other times you will be deeply moved and God will begin to reveal to you all sorts of things. The key is this is a practice. Silence, solitude, centering prayer. These are bodily practices that we do on a rhythmic basis. I would encourage you to try to accumulate 10 minutes a day of silence and solitude with some sort of meditative practice like centering prayer. Uh, Over time, what God does in that is he begins to bring up memories that he wants to heal. He begins to make you aware of false masks, motivations, actions. He begins to help you see your true identity in him and he clarifies his will. And so as we wrap this up and conclude this this teaching on silence and solitude, I want to give you one more thought to consider. I think in some measure, our avoidance of silence and solitude in general is not just a fear of exploring the unknown. I do think it's because of our unconscious fear of death. (laughs) Yeah, I know. How can silence and solitude be related to our fear of death? Let Let me explain. Throughout the biblical narrative... Oftentimes when God was preparing to judge a people, the prophets would proclaim and demand silence. Judgment would come with God's, um, yeah, there would be a lot of terrible things that would happen as God's, God let people do what people do as an act of judgment. And prior to that, silence coastlands, the prophets would say. God's judgment is coming. And ultimately, death Death is a form of judgment, and death is total silence. Death is where we become totally alone. We enter utter solitude. This is why the psalmist writes, The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. Psalm 115, verse 17 from the ESV. Think about Jesus in silence and solitude in reference to death. As Jesus died upon the cross, he entered total silence. Jesus at the cross was abandoned by his friends, and Jesus fully entered the complete solitude of death. He entered ultimate silence and ultimate solitude in death, which was essentially in our place. He entered our death, and that is the love of God for you. Jesus took on your death And Jesus rose from death to everlasting life. What Jesus did in the resurrection was he broke the silence of death forever so that when we listen, we can hear his living words to us. Jesus overcame the solitude of death and he rose to create an eternal community of people who are joined to him and each other through his forgiveness, so now our words are heavy laden with his praise and his glory. This week, try to find space and time 
plan for it, plan for a, a place, pray for a place, start small, enter into silence and solitude, be a courageous explorer of those foreign places. And God, the Holy Spirit, as you meditate on a particular word that represents the whole of biblical teaching, or you meditate deeply on a particular phrase, and you let the anxiety and the anxious thoughts and what has to be done just pass you by as you sit with God in silence and solitude, God will shape you there. God will create a posture of stillness that then, like Jesus, you will carry into this world as a non-anxious presence. And you will be presented with opportunities to cultivate creation and do good for other humans, just as Jesus, your good God, has done for you. Blessings on you.